Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, I'm going to be sharing a COVID update that I recently recorded as a uh, video with slides for the Better Health While Aging community. I hope you find this helpful. Well, hello there, everybody. This is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging, and I have decided to record another COVID-19 update for the Better Health While Aging community. This is the edition of November 18th, 2020, because that's the day that I am recording this. And um, so here is what I'm going to be covering during this episode. Uh, I'm gonna briefly recap the situation today. I'm sure you are all aware that things have been uh, quickly changing with COVID and honestly uh, getting worse in terms of the number of cases we have every day and the deaths going up. But I'm going to recap that today and then talk about uh, one, why the rates uh, are so high right now uh, and what that means uh, in terms of uh, prevention and transmission. I am gonna cover um, some of the recent developments in how we are treating COVID uh, and also uh, regarding vaccination. There's been some exciting news about vaccines recently. I'm gonna talk about what this means for older adults and families. I'm going to address if you're wondering if it's safe too. We do have Thanksgiving coming up in uh, just about a week. And I'm gonna finish with my recommendations uh, right now for the holidays and the winter time. So, you know, I would say that when it comes to COVID, overall, there's good news and there's bad news. Um, the good news is that since I last recorded an update, which was a few months ago, we have gotten better at treating COVID in the hospital. And I'm going to talk a bit about that. And also amazing progress has been made in um, developing a vaccine is really uh, record breaking. Um, the speed with which uh, vaccines have been put through the development and testing phase. So that's really exciting. Uh, and so we might have effective vaccines soon, although we can talk about what soon means. <laughs> um, and, uh, and also there's been generally nationwide greater acceptance, I would say of preventive measures, uh, especially now that so many states are affected such as masking and physical distancing. So that's good news for me as a public health professional, because I do think those are integral to keeping this um, really serious uh, virus under control. But of course there's bad news. The news has gotten quite bad over the last few weeks in the United States, which is that we are in the midst of a significant nationwide surge with the highest numbers that as a country we've seen for, uh, for daily cases. So um, today uh, we are at over 11.3 million cases total in the United States and um, approaching 250,000 deaths. Um, and uh, we're now, uh, depends on the day, having over 160,000 new cases every day. And this is just flabbergasting to me. I remember how just a few weeks ago, I was shocked when we hit 100,000 cases in a day. And now we're sort of 60% higher than that. And then also um, the death rate, uh, the number of deaths every day has been going up. So we've been at over a thousand most days for uh, several days now. And yesterday there was actually a record breaking day of I think over 1500 deaths. So um, virtually all states right now are affected. It's actually some of um, certain rural states are among those that have the highest number of cases per 100,000 residents, such as the Dakotas, but also more populous states are being um, badly affected uh, as well. And in general, we're seeing higher per capita rates than in the spring. So uh, which number wave it is, you know, to a certain 
degree depends on which part of the country that you are in. For some of these states or communities, it's the first time they're experiencing a serious peak of COVID. But nationwide, it looks like a third wave. And unfortunately, because um, the growth in number of daily cases is accelerating, which means that it tends to go up every week and it tends to go up by more and more every week. So a steeper slope. And so um, this is uh, what it looks like on the New York Times graphs. That's one place that you can find them. And you can see how we are in this, um, uh, at the end here in November, how we're much higher for daily cases than before. And it kind of looks like the third bump and it's still a very steep slope. And what we wanna see is, we want to eventually see it flattening out and maybe come back down the other side, but it's not clear when that is going to start happening. The deaths, meanwhile, are not uh, as many per day as they were back at the height of things being bad in April when we were having more than 2,000 deaths per day, but uh, we're moving in that direction. Uh, unfortunately, and what we know uh, for COVID is that usually the deaths, um, the increase in deaths lags the increase in cases by about three weeks. So even though, as I'm going to discuss, I think we have gotten better at treating COVID and the mortality rates uh, have gone down. Also in some parts of the country that cases have been more in younger people who are less likely to get hospitalized and are less likely to die if they are hospitalized. Um, I would expect that with the number of cases going up so much that we are going to continue to see deaths keep going up for at least a few more weeks, which is really sobering to think about. So, um, so the question is, you know, why are the rates so high right now? What happened? How did this situation get out of hand like that? And um, it's really about a lot of things, but uh, I think, you know, some of the things that contributed to it is that we did have a lot of reopening in uh, the fall. So we had a bit of a peak in COVID in the summer, but then it sort of came back down by um, uh, Labor Day, the numbers were looking better. And so a lot of universities or colleges uh, reopened, a lot of businesses reopened, schools in some communities reopened. Um, so uh, that may have contributed. Uh, also, ever since the COVID crisis hit, there have been some communities um, that have done less masking and less social distancing. So as I think everybody knows, there has generally not been a very strong coordinated federal response for managing COVID. The Trump administration has mostly left it up to states and their individual uh, public health departments to decide how to manage it. So, um, so some uh, states have imposed very few restrictions. Other states, I live in California, have imposed significantly uh, more. And, um, and we're seeing increases in COVID everywhere, but some of those places that are having their first really uh, severe bout, um, some of those are places that uh, had not uh, taken on much masking or social distancing. Although in some of these states, they tend to have Republican governors. The governors are finally just this week stepping in to insist um, on masks. Uh, so that's probably also a contributor. Um, people have also been gathering socially more. And so as I'm gonna discuss, that's probably an important contributor to spreading COVID. And the more it spreads, the more it persists, the more there is around, the more it goes up, right? It's kind of like a snowball. Um, so people have been uh, gathering, you know, in part because of pandemic fatigue. A lot of people uh, pulled back on their gatherings with family and friends for many months and people are tired of that. People miss socializing with their loved ones uh, and otherwise living their life. Um, and many of these gatherings have, uh, or other activities have been moving indoors because of the winter weather and the temperatures dropping. So these are all probably things that together have, um, have created this situation where the COVID just took off and it is a bit like a fire. I mean, once it gets going, the bigger it is, the faster uh, it grows. And so um, right now it's, it's going pretty quickly. Another thing to keep in mind is that even though things were better in September, we never brought cases way, way down after the summer surge. So if you go back and look at it, even um, I think in September, we were still at um, something like you know, the 20 to 30,000 uh, cases per day uh, range. Um, and, um, and so it's unfortunate that we weren't able to get things uh, further down, but uh, 
it's, it's been hard. It's been hard. It's been important to people to reopen um, businesses and livelihoods, uh, understandably, to resume educational activities. Um, so, um, so here we are right now with quite, uh, quite high rates. And um, so why is this a problem? So some people may think, well, is this such a huge problem? We're gonna get you know, closer to herd immunity. Herd immunity is this idea that once about 60% of people have had an illness, um, uh, if only you know, 30 to 40% of people are susceptible to it, it can't spread very quickly. Uh, so some people might think, oh, we're getting closer to herd immunity, or now that we're better at taking care of COVID, the mortality rates are going down. Is it a big deal if we have really high case numbers? Um, well, I would say it is a big deal. I mean, even if mortality rates go down, even if mortality from COVID is, is you know, 1%, it's actually, um, it's a bit higher for people who are older, our best estimates. Um, and it's lower for people who are younger uh, and healthier. But, you know, first of all, when you have millions of people getting it, that is a lot of deaths. Um, and each one is, you know, devastating to the person who's ill and to their family. But also when we have, you know, high levels of COVID, it really creates a surge that stresses the capacity of the system. And then the system can't work the way we want it to. So for instance, what we see is that once COVID starts going up, the testing centers get overwhelmed. And then people can't get tested, which makes it hard for them to know whether they should continue to isolate or quarantine or take further measures for, for possible uh, COVID. And then really importantly, and we are seeing this in many communities in the United States, is once the COVID rates go up in a community, the hospitals can become overextended. Um, so there are many hospitals right now in the country that their intensive care units are full, their emergency rooms are very busy, their hospital beds uh, are very busy. And because that tends to happen, you know, not just for a single hospital, but for a whole geographical area, it's very hard to transfer the person to another hospital that might um, have space. And all the things we've learned about optimally caring for people who are hospitalized with COVID become very hard to do when the hospital is very full. When a hospital is very full because of high COVID prevalence, their staff are also coming down with COVID or having to quarantine. And so they get, you know, staffing shortages. Um, so um, it just gets really tough when it gets high like this. Uh, so that's one problem. And then the other problem is that when the, you know, what we call the community prevalence rate of COVID. So that's to say, you know, um, what percent of the people around have COVID, uh, which is partly determined by testing um, and by the test positivity rate, although that's also a function of how available testing is and how it gets paid for and who offers it. But, you know, one more, when the percentage of people around who have COVID or might have COVID goes up, that means that all activities become riskier, whether you are doing something essential, you know, like getting groceries or maybe something uh, less essential, you know, like visiting with a friend, you know, hopefully outside and still at a distance. And that's because generally your COVID risk of an activity is about the likelihood that someone is infected times the inherent COVID exposure level of the activity. And in a moment, I'll talk more again about what makes an activity inherently uh, riskier. Um, but you know, if only one person in a thousand walking around you has uh, COVID, you know, your risk is quite low when you're going around. And if it's higher, then your, your risk is higher. So, um, so as the community prevalence goes up, even essential activities that you might be doing really carefully um, become riskier and that's a problem for all of us, but especially for um, those in our community who are older, who have chronic health conditions or who are at otherwise higher risk of having a serious uh, COVID course or a life-threatening COVID course. So, um, so if we want to think about, you know, what can I do to protect myself and also, you know, what can we do as, a, as communities, as societies to bring down these COVID rates, then I think it's important to review again, you know, how is COVID transmitted? And so uh, again, it's, you know, in some ways similar to the common cold, um, that basically people, uh, when they become infected with COVID, um, they start to exhale the virus and they will often do this for, um, 
uh, one to two days, possibly a little bit longer before they have symptoms. And also a certain number of people either have no symptoms or have very mild symptoms that they wouldn't recognize as COVID. So they also may be you know, symptomatic and not realizing they have COVID. And so during this time, they're exhaling the virus. Um, and so um, we can catch it. Uh, generally, the, it's thought that the main way of uh, catching it is that you breathe in enough virus. Um, either because somebody is talking near you, kind of in, um, in your face, uh, or they might be singing or doing uh, something else. Um, uh, so you breathe it in, or potentially uh, you might touch a surface with the virus, and the virus lives longer on hard, non-permeable surfaces, and then you touch your face, especially your eyes, your nose, your mouth. Now, um, there is evidence that the amount of the exposure dose matters. So if it's a trace amount on, you know, a surface at the grocery store or something like that, that's less likely to, to sort of take hold in your body and create an illness. And if it does, it will likely create a milder illness. Whereas if you get a big whiff of somebody who's really carrying a lot of it in their exhalations and you breathe it in deeply, you're more likely to get sick and you're more likely to have a severe um, course. So, um, so again, people are contagious two days before uh, symptoms. And um, so uh, experts believe right now that the close, what we call close transmission of respiratory droplets. So these are bigger droplets that come out, um, especially when people speak, shout, sing, um, and they generally sort of fall down within a few feet. So somebody who's not wearing a mask. So the mask tends to catch those things and keep them near the person. So masks, especially the fabric ones or surgical ones, are about protecting other people from your exhalations. And um, to take that seriously, we have to understand that we might easily have COVID and not uh, realize it. So they think that's the main cause of transmission, but it's also been demonstrated that smaller particles can carry COVID and the smaller ones stay airborne for longer. So they might float in a room, especially if there's not ventilation. And it has been noted that sometimes in restaurants with the air conditioner, the path of the air conditioning, you know, has carried COVID from one infected diner, you know, much further than expected. And so that's thought to be smaller particles that um, float for, for longer. Um, so this is the rationale right now for, you know, not only being close to people, you know, avoiding being close to people unmasked, but also for being very careful about indoor spaces with poor ventilation. We want spaces where the air is circulating uh, quite a lot to get those uh, smaller particles out of the way. And although it's still possible that you could catch COVID by touching an infected, you know, contaminated surface and then touching uh, yourself, it's thought to be much less common. So now experts, you know, at the beginning, people had concerns about, can I touch the mail? Can I touch the groceries? And um, it's still recommended to, you know, uh, in areas where lots of people are moving to, you know, decontaminate high touch surfaces often. You should definitely wash your hands when you come in from the house. You should wipe things down, especially if someone who's not in your house uh, comes in. But it's really thought that this, you know, touching surfaces is not a significant um, uh, way that people catch COVID. And you really want to be most careful about breathing in what other people exhale. Uh, and so to prevent that, if they wear a mask, it helps quite a lot. And then if you wear uh, really a very tight or close fitting mask, like an N95, that can keep you from breathing in um, uh, the, um, the particles. It won't protect your eyes. So if somebody is shouting or singing close to you and it gets in your eyes, you could still uh, get it. So, um, so researchers have now done, you know, studies of COVID outbreaks, and they've identified some activities that they think are especially likely to transmit COVID. And um, so those would be, uh, just one second. Um, let me move a little something on my computer. Okay, so the activities especially likely to transmit COVID um, would be indoor gatherings. Um, so uh, meals, social gatherings with other households. This is why all the experts are feeling so uh, concerned about the Thanksgiving holiday coming up. There have been lots of outbreaks associated with um, uh, family gatherings or social gatherings, especially if they are indoors, although it also happens uh, outdoors. So 
uh, it's really advised right now to be very careful about mixing with people from other households. Um, really, you know, don't do it is the advice. And then other um, activities, locations that uh, seem higher risk bars, probably because if people are eating or drinking, they take off their mask. It's often noisy. People need to sit near each other to hear each other. Uh, restaurants, especially with indoor dining, gyms and fitness centers, uh, anything with crowds, especially crowds indoors, weddings and funerals. And um, even outside gatherings that are unmasked have been linked to outbreaks. Uh, but um, so if you're gathering with people and it's outside, you still want to think about uh, wearing a mask. And if you're at very high risk, wearing a tighter fitting mask to keep you from inhaling something that other people might be exhaling. Uh, so um, that is uh, where we're at in terms of COVID transmission. So let me now shift to talking about um, the improvements in uh, treatment. So we do have a better understanding of how COVID is transmitted. And then we also have made improvements in, in treatment. Now, uh, in general, it still seems that 80% of COVID cases, even among older adults, even among very old frail nursing home uh, residents, it might be a little lower among that group, um, but you know the majority of COVID cases are mild and don't require hospitalization. Um, now, a lot of therapies have been studied, but right now no COVID-specific therapy is available for people who are being treated. Uh, well, no therapy has been proven to be effective for people who are being treated in the outpatient setting uh, in this way. There's one kind of caveat. There's a new development that I'm going to talk about with a certain type of uh, antibody uh, treatment. But um, when I want to look up the latest recommendations and guidelines uh, related to COVID, I look at uptodate.com. Their uh, COVID articles are free to the public. They're written for health providers. So I'll post a link to that in the notes and you, you can look. And so in their recommendations for outpatient care, you know, no COVID-specific therapy. Um, and so the treatment is supportive care to manage fever, hydration. People can still feel quite lousy, like it's a bad flu. It can go on for weeks. Um, and, uh, and the care is often managed uh, remotely via telehealth check-ins. Um, and another very important aspect of this outpatient care for mild COVID is monitoring to make sure that the person isn't developing pneumonia or signs of, you know, um, deterioration or complication. So, um, so it is recommended right now that if you have a positive COVID test, but uh, aren't short of breath uh, and are otherwise low risk, you can remain in the outpatient setting and there should be a plan to keep monitoring you uh, and make sure that you aren't in that minority of people who is going to get uh, sicker. And so, um, what patients, families, and their health providers should be looking for is shortness of breath or other signs of serious illness, chest pain, bad stomach pain, weakness for older adults. We definitely know that delirium could be a sign of COVID getting worse. So that's that worse than usual mental state that people, um, uh, older adults, especially frail older adults can develop when they're sick. Um, and we also want to be mindful that uh, what we've seen with COVID is people get sick, but then the shortness of breath and pneumonia tends to develop four to eight days after they first develop symptoms. So that's, you know, a time to be especially alert. Um, and um, a pulse oximeter device. So if you haven't gotten one yet, they uh, are very useful, but that's the little device that's put on the finger to measure oxygen levels. Um, having one of those at home, and I would say also a home blood pressure monitor. That's extremely helpful so that during the telehealth visits, those numbers can be reported to the providers and that can help them determine whether the person is just feeling blah, but is otherwise safe to continue with COVID self-care at home or whether they might need to come in uh, for further evaluation and potentially hospitalization. And then um, we've also had improvements in COVID treatment for people who are more seriously ill. So right now, uh, if people are short of breath, have low oxygen levels, or otherwise look like they're getting very sick, and um, the pneumonia is the most common complication right now of COVID, but we've seen that it's an extremely varied virus that can cause all kinds of cardiac complications, other complications related to blood clots, um, 
So, uh, so if there's any suspicion that something like that might be happening, you know, people should get an urgent evaluation and many of them are hospitalized. Um, so what are we doing now for, um, for coronavirus? Um, the hospital doctors have really, uh, in most places, gone quite good at providing additional oxygenation support to people who are having coronavirus pneumonia, COVID pneumonia, while delaying intubation. So what they found is that often if they can um, support the person and they have some different methods to provide some higher flow oxygen, they've also found for people who are having these pneumonias or difficulty breathing that proning, so turning them on their sides or on their belly for part of the time. They've developed you know, new mattresses and techniques to make it easier to actually implement. Uh, that with that, it's often possible to delay um, intubation, the tube in the throat and the machine breathing for, for some people and you get better outcomes. Uh, we've also learned that COVID often causes more uh, blood clots that create lots of problems. So now in most cases, it does have to be kind of customized to a person's health history. People will get um, anticoagulation medications, medications to prevent blood clots when they are in the hospital for serious COVID. Um, and then the medication that uh, right now has the best track record in research um, for improving outcomes for serious COVID is dexamethasone. It's a glucocorticoid, so also known as a steroid uh, medication that reduces inflammation. It does not seem to work if the COVID is uh, mild. Um, there's also been a lot of interest in the medication remdesivir. Um, you know, with more data, it's a little like less clear how effective it is or for who. Um, but um, hospitals are often offering it if they have it uh, available. And then there are a variety of treatments that are being tried experimentally. And it is really important that these be tried, but also important that they be studied in a trial because what um, they are finding is that several treatments seem promising when they're just given to some people, but once they do a formal trial uh, and come, you know, with a uh, uh, a better structure, they're finding that actually the evidence that it uh, improves outcomes goes way down. So, um, so if you are getting a treatment, I, you know, um, or if you or your loved one are going to be in the hospital, I think uh, asking if you can be part of a trial if possible is a good idea. Uh, if not, if they have something and the doctors want to try it, I mean, if you're very sick, it's very hard to say no. Um, so, um, but in general, you know, the hospital care is better, but we also still don't have kind of slam dunk treatments that make a huge difference in uh, most people. So I would say there's still no, no great cure, but survival rates overall did seem to have improved in the hospitals. So what does this mean for older adults? I would say for older adults in particular, you know, the treatments are better, but COVID can still be hard to treat. And it's still, you know, um, it's a dicey situation when people have to be hospitalized from COVID. For those who are frail or very old, uh, if their oxygen levels go down, then um, getting hospitalized, or if they're in nursing homes, nursing homes may be able to provide this care still within the nursing home, getting extra oxygen uh, can help. I don't know that we know for sure whether proning in people who are frail and much older, you know, above age 85 makes a difference or not. Um, but what we do know is that surviving the ventilator, if it comes to that, is still likely a long shot. And anyone who survives is extremely debilitated and will need months of rehabilitation. So um, it's always important to have done some advanced care planning. It's especially important when there's a serious illness going around like this. And um, so if you are doing that or revisiting that and thinking about, you know, what should your family know about your preferences if you were sick enough from COVID to be hospitalized, uh, it's not unreasonable to be hospitalized or even to say, I'd like to be on the ventilator if I got sick enough. Um, but it is important to be aware of the uh, likelihood of uh, success. Um, and so especially for older adults who have been in nursing homes or uh, have dementia, are very old, um, debilitated, uh, uh, as far as we know, the survival rates are not, are not very high. And so that's something to keep in mind. 
So in summary, hospital health providers have learned a lot about treating COVID and decreasing mortality rates, but many hospitals are now approaching surge conditions, which impairs their ability to provide best known care. And so again, they're experiencing shortages of beds, ICU beds and regular beds, shortages of staff, and sometimes shortages of um, personal protective equipment. Now, uh, I want to briefly say something about monoclonal antibodies. This was in the news just last week. So uh, I think everybody knows that President Trump was diagnosed with COVID in uh, early October. He got a lot of treatment, including some experimental therapies and um, an antibody, an experimental antibody cocktail. And that one um, is in... He sort of promoted it as a cure afterwards, but it's being studied, and right now the results are not that impressive. But there is a different one. Um, uh, this one is provided by uh, the drug maker is Eli Lilly, um, and it has a long name, Bamlanivimab. Um, that one has been studied as well. Um, a you know, study found that it was not improving survival in hospitalized patients, but it did seem to reduce hospitalization rates in people um, who were outpatients. Uh, and that's the thing about these antibody kind of treatments is they're thought to work better if they're given quite early in the course. So in general, for COVID treatments, they're the ones that seem to work better in people who are severely ill. So dexamethasone seems to work in people who need oxygen, who are ill enough to need oxygen, but not in people early on. And then there are other ones that seem to make a difference early in the course. Um, but don't make a difference once people are seriously ill. So um, the story that I thought was very interesting was that um, the you know, preliminary study showed that this antibody treatments reduced hospitalization rates. These were in people who were diagnosed with COVID but were being treated outpatient, so they weren't sick enough to be hospitalized. And it reduced uh, the hospitalization rate from 10% to 3%. So that means that the number needed to treat, the number of people who had to get the treatment for one person to avoid hospitalization due to COVID was 14.3. So uh, if you were one of these outpatients and you took the treatment, you had a 1 in 14 chance of it uh, making a difference for you. But this was a group of... Um, a group that was, I think, not that big, and also the median age of the participants was 45. Um, so they had a smaller group that were over age 65, and I think in that group, the hospitalization rate went from 15% to um, maybe 5%. Um, so, uh, so based on this, uh, the company got emergency use approval from the FDA. So this is not the same as being FDA approved, but this um, is an emergency use authorization while they get more information. And then the next day, Medicare announced that they would pay for it if providers wanted to get it. Um, so, um, and uh, people at high risk of uh, hospitalization are people in nursing homes. So this question has come up, you know, is this going to be helpful to nursing homes that we're going to have these antibody treatments and maybe if there's a case in the nursing home, you can give it to lots of people. I think it's too soon to say, even if the medication is approved and Medicare is paying, um, first of all, it's a little bit hard to administer. It has to be given uh, intravenously. Um, and uh, the supply is likely to be limited. So that sort of remains to be seen. But if you heard that news, that is what I've heard about it so far. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, evolves. So what do I think are the best hopes for improvement of this situation? So in the short term, um, flattening the curve, you know, through prevention or really reduction, it's very hard to entirely prevent uh, transmission, but reducing the transmission of COVID um, via masks, via social distancing. Now, I don't know that any community can do this, but, you know, they have done this in China. You know, they also set up um, just hotels and locations where people who were sick could go and stay so they didn't have to stay with their families, uh, exposing their families. Um, but you basically need to be able to um, uh, reduce the transmission. Um, uh, ideally, I didn't put it on the slide, but, um, you know, promptly identifying people who are infected and separating them from everybody else. Ideally, we would do that as well. Um, and then in general, the higher the community prevalence, the more important it becomes to restrict movement and mingling. So in France, 
Europe has also seen a takeoff, you know, with the winter time in their COVID rates. And in France, they imposed a curfew um, on, I think, everybody. They did keep schools open and essential businesses open, and they did see their, their case numbers start to come down. But, um, uh, but yes, the restrictions often um, impose certain costs, certainly economically on businesses, um, and feel very restrictive to people. So, um, but the higher the prevalence, the more important it is to create those um, reductions in people mingling. Uh, so that is what we need right now. And we are starting to see in the United States, various um, communities imposing curfews uh, or other forms of restrictions, you know, in terms of closing restaurants and bars or closing them after a certain hour. I think just this week, Los Angeles announced um, a curfew. Um, and um, New York, on the other hand, is closing its schools, which um, it's not clear that closing schools, especially for younger children, is... Uh, super effective, um, but we're seeing communities taking different actions. But in the longer term, what we really need is um, to make a, a difference is vaccination. So let me talk for a little bit about the um, uh, updates on the vaccine front. So here, um, this is exciting, although at the same time, we have to temper our enthusiasm in that there's not going to be a vaccine available by for everyone by Christmas, I don't think. Um, so, um, that said, um, it has been an amazing, uh, success the way, um, the, uh, vaccine development industry and the research community has mobilized. So, uh, the information I saw is that currently there are 54 vaccines in human trials that might be just in the United States, but just in the last like 10 days, um, it's made the news that two of them released preliminary results that were extremely uh, encouraging. So first, um, Pfizer announced that their vaccine seemed to be 90% effective at preventing coronavirus, including an in older adult, and then Moderna uh, just announced that their vaccine seems to be 94% um, efficacious. Now, these are based on like the preliminary data, a relatively small group. It still needs to be confirmed in a larger group. We definitely, you know, um, want to be able to see, you know, in different age groups, uh, how it performs in people with different kinds of underlying health conditions. But overall, it's extremely promising and it is the fastest vaccine development ever. However, so first of all, those two vaccines um, require two shots. Uh, a few weeks apart. Um, and the challenge is going to be that even if you have a vaccine that seems to be safe and efficacious, it is a, a huge logistic endeavor to manufacture at the scale that we need. I mean, we need, um, we need uh, millions of doses, hundreds of millions of doses, right? There are 330 million Americans, I think. Um, so you need hundreds of millions of doses. Uh, available plus it's two doses uh, per person. Um, so manufacturing that much vaccine is really challenging. And then uh, these two particular vaccines both require um, storage in freezers. So one of them is at like 94, minus 94 Fahrenheit, I think, um, which is really cold and much colder. You know, th that is not like your household freezer and that is not the freezer that the average doctor's office has access to. You really need a special storage facility for that. The other one has to be frozen, um, but not quite as cold. I want to say it was minus five Fahrenheit. Um, so, uh, so yes, you know, the manufacturing, distributing it to centers that can administer it, storing it, getting people in and administering it. Um, when you're doing that at scale, that's a, a large endeavor. So it's still unclear when vaccination is going to be widely available to the general public. Presumably they're gonna start with the people who are at highest risk, frontline health workers, and then possibly uh, general public at higher risk, such as older adults, hopefully. Um, so on one hand, I think this is promising because I feel like, wow, like maybe like most of us can be vaccinated by this time next year. Um, and at the same time, if you're hoping that this, that vaccines are going to make a difference by Christmas time, um, I think probably not just because we're still a ways away from having, you know, the manufacturing at scale and the distribution at scale that we are going to need. So... Uh, to recap briefly for COVID and older adults, um, 
As I think everyone knows, older age is associated with greater susceptibility to catching COVID and higher risk of severe illness. Now, most older people, even people aged over you know, 90, have mild to moderate clinical courses that don't require hospitalization. The mortality rates in nursing homes are often around 20, 25%. That is horrific. And at the same time, you know, over three quarters of people, even very frail people do uh, survive. And overall, most of the COVID deaths have been in people who are over age 50, and a disproportionate number of them have been in nursing homes and in long-term care. So, um, so yes, despite our best efforts, age is the number one risk factor and it goes up with kind of every five year uh, increment. So especially if there's high community transmission in your area, you really wanna take care to minimize your uh, exposure risks and nursing home residents remain at very uh, high risk. Um, so especially during a surge, uh, they're going to be at risk because a community surge or high prevalence means that the people who work in the nursing home have a higher risk of having uh, COVID and unintentionally bringing it in. And also, um, you know, the visitation rules are changing very quickly. When COVID first hit, a lot of nursing homes stopped family visitation. This imposed terrible isolation um, and also care burdens on nursing home residents. For many nursing home residents, they actually get a fair amount of care from visiting family members. So um, depending on you know, where uh, people are, uh, those restrictions were relaxed somewhat, they're probably clamping down in many places. And so if family are allowed to visit, that's another potential source of risk to, to keep in mind. So we should be very careful. Um, that said, I know many people have arguments with their aging parents about how careful to be. And again, um, as much as we care about an older person, and we might be totally right that they are vulnerable and at high risk, we have to respect people's, the choices people make for themselves and realize that for some older adults, uh, minimizing their risk of COVID may not be their number one priority. Uh, so we wanna give people information. We do want everybody to know that it is, it is less safe now to go to the grocery store, even if you wear the same equipment, take the same precautions. If COVID has gone up in your community, it is less safe now than it was a few months ago when COVID rates were lower, assuming you are in a place where they were lower before and they have gone up, which is what has happened to most of us. Um, so we do wanna make sure people are aware of that. So uh, now is a reasonable time to cut back on one's activities, you know, at least for a few weeks until things start to uh, settle down. But we also can't force our older relatives to, um, to listen. Um, so, um, so I encourage everybody to have conversations and try to help family members be informed uh, and also um, not let it become too severe a point of conflict. Uh, with family because we do need to let people we love make choices that are uh, might be different than what we would want for them. So uh, people often want to know, is it safe to? So nothing has ever been 100% safe in terms of COVID since the pandemic started, but uh, generally things are even less safe now. That is true. <laughs> so, so again, your risk depends on how much COVID is going on in your local community. So you know, I encourage everybody to bookmark whatever page there is for your city or county reporting local numbers and follow it. And then again, how close are you getting to other people's exhalations? For how long? How much airflow is there? Are you wearing a mask? Especially are other people mostly wearing a mask? How much are you touching the same surfaces? Um, these are the things that kind of determine uh, the safety. So, um, in terms of what to expect this winter and what I recommend, um, I am sorry to say that I expect cases are going to continue to go up for a while. This is like a fire that is somewhat out of control. And so, the, you know, the bigger the fire, the more work it is to turn it around. Um, so I expect cases will continue to go up, unfortunately, unless significant restrictions on activity are imposed. And then those have to be held for at least a few weeks. So 
um, like other public health professionals, I would say please avoid gathering with other people inside. It is sad to not get together for Thanksgiving, but that is really risky these days. If you must run essential errands, choosing places that are less crowded or times when it is less crowded, that does seem to uh, potentially make a difference as well. I encourage everybody to wear a mask when outside your household. It is part of how we keep each other safer as a community um, no you know tons of people did not think they had covid and in fact they had it and they transmitted it to others and then if you're especially concerned about your own risk of inhaling the virus wearing um, an n95 mask uh, a tight-fitting mask um, is uh, safest they think that even wearing a cloth mask might help somewhat in reducing what you bring in but the safest ones are the tight-fitting ones um, that um, you know can be a little bit hard to find right now and then uh, I would encourage you to support actions you know in your community that reduce transmission so um, you know uh, your local health authorities are responding somewhat to how much their uh, their citizens you know uh, ask for safer measures or resist safer measures so um, I worry that leaving people to make their individual choices is not enough and we make our communities safer especially for the most vulnerable among us when we all act in ways that reduce those risks of transmission and when the risks of transmission are lower it makes it possible for us to keep more businesses open schools going and maybe more activity for our most vulnerable citizens so that would be you know my uh my suggestion and then a few other thoughts. Um, I know that, that uh, I didn't talk much about testing in today's episode, but, um, but I know that some people, uh, so testing can be done for kind of two reasons. You know, one is diagnostic testing. Somebody has symptoms and they need a diagnosis. But there's also been, um, you know, there's also sort of screening testing that is done sometimes. So it's certainly, you know, part of the routine for some nursing homes. Uh, or other uh, workplaces to test the people working there regularly. The idea is, to, you know, to catch um, unknown infections uh, earlier. And then sometimes individuals or families uh, are getting tests before they take a trip to see somebody or, um, you know, as kind of a, uh, yes, a safety check before activity. I want to caution you all against that strategy. And there are a couple reasons for this. So first of all, no test is totally accurate, but especially the rapid tests uh, often can be inaccurate. Uh, also, even a really good task uh, will not pick up infection in somebody who is in that window where they've been infected but haven't yet um, the virus hasn't yet gotten going enough that they're either symptomatic or at least shedding a lot of virus for the test to pick up um, so you know if you're using this strategy to go visit your vulnerable older person you should realize there are the limitations um, so what is probably uh, you know, safer, although still not 100% safe, is to do a super strict quarantine for two weeks and then be extremely careful in how you leave your quarantine space and go to wherever you're going. Hopefully it's not far. That's probably the, the safer strategy, although, um, you know, um, I think public health officials are still reluctant to recommend it because, you know, of course, the safest strategy is to not, um, you know, not go and gather with uh, anybody else and to, you know, preferably stay put. Um, and then uh, I have heard that sometimes people get those pulse ox devices and then use those to check themselves and make sure they're okay before they go do something. And I want to say that is not at all suitable. <laughs> you know? So um, most people who are, so first of all, if you have low oxygen levels, uh, you probably will already be feeling sick. Um, and so this is not a way to, this is not a way to check and make sure you're okay after you've had a gathering. This is not a way to check and make sure you're okay if you've had a gathering. And it's not a way to check and ask yourself, are you okay before you go and gather with people? So checking the oxygen levels should really just be about uh, either if, you're, if you know you have COVID or if you're worried you might have COVID, uh, especially if you're having any respiratory symptoms, it's to determine whether um, whether actually your oxygen levels are low, which would you know mean that you should get more care. It is not at all like good for evaluating your level of you know risk or safety before or after an activity mingling with other people. 
Um, other recommendation, um, we are going to hope for the best and plan for the possible. So I hope none of you and none of your loved ones come down with COVID and that if you do, it's a mild case and any of us could come down with it. Any of us, even the youngest healthy ones can get seriously ill. So it's a good idea to have reviewed, you know, what are your preferences and wishes? What should your family know that you would want if you got sick enough from COVID that your blood oxygen levels were, were low and that you might require hospitalization or even the breathing um, uh, machine? Um, so if you haven't had those conversations, uh, I'll have some resources in the notes to some conversation guides. Um, and if for some reason, uh, if you're caring for an older relative who's particularly old or frail, so for instance, somebody you know, who has dementia or is uh, in, um, uh, who's already needing to be in a facility or needs a lot of support, um, if for whatever reason you decide that you'd prefer to not, pursue hospitalization, it's very important to let your primary providers know of that and find out like what would be the options for treating uncomfortable symptoms. So uh, useful resources, I recommend you bookmark um, your state and county's COVID dashboard. Uh, and then for the latest on COVID treatment and medical science, up to date has made their COVID topics um, free. There's also um, a uh, organization called Journal Watch. It's affiliated with the New England Journal of Medicine. And it's a paid service for clinicians, but the blog I think is free. And they have an HIV infectious disease blog that has a um, lot of good updates on COVID because COVID is an infectious uh, disease. So that's another resource that I like. So uh, I'm wishing you all a safe uh, winter. Um, and I hope we can all feel prepared for what I think is going to be a challenging winter. Uh, I appreciate everybody doing their part to reduce community transmission, so mass social distancing, putting off indoor gathering, uh, and it's especially important when COVID cases are high or even when they start rising, you know, that is when ideally we would take action to keep it from going up. The problem is people keep hoping it will just level off on its own without them changing anything, but it almost never does. Uh, I think we need to plan to live with these risks for at least the next six months. Um, I hope to be proven wrong and that a vaccine is available sooner. Um, and um, then I want to acknowledge again that it's uh, frail and vulnerable older adults who are both at highest risk from catching COVID and also at the highest risk from suffering from the strict safety measures because of, you know, less physical mobility, less social interaction. So I want to acknowledge it's a challenging trade-off. And, um, and that if you struggle with it, that is common. There's no, there's, I have nothing to say other than that this is a terrible situation we found ourselves in and we just have to get through it as best we can. So please do take care of yourselves. It's a difficult time. Connect with your neighbors and community while remaining cautiously distanced um, and focus on what you can do and what you uh, enjoy. Outdoor activities alone or with your immediate household generally should be okay and then we can be creative about connecting virtually or in a distance way. So please take care, stay safe these next several weeks and have a safe and as good as possible Thanksgiving. Thank you everyone. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.